Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000. They're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100, uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy, and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text wine to 511-511, Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Good morning, everybody. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith sitting in for Tom. Honored to do it. Honored to be with you. My opening question is what did Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un have in common 
with the International House of B. Today, this morning, this afternoon on the East Coast, we posit that the International House of B and the Trump-Kim talks were engaging in a similar strategy. Large spectacles with uncertain meaning. The International House of Pancakes wanted to get people like me telling people like you that they serve hamburgers. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un wanted to boost their apparent relevance, power, and importance on the world stage while signing a document that didn't make it clear that North Korea was committing to much of anything. Nonetheless, however, that is what the world has been seeing. That is what the world has been clicking upon. That is what the world has been talking about. The bully pulpit in this portion of the 21st century is not about persuasion. The bully pulpit at this part of the 21st century is about attention. Say a thing, do a thing, perform something that will get people talking about something. Because what the attention getters understand is social science research demonstrating that each of us can keep only about seven pieces of information in our mind at once. If we can flood the zone with information, if we can flood the zone with spectacle, if we can garner attention, not only do we win the attention, but we can drown out other stuff. What's getting drowned out? The first time I had a chance to join you, we talked about the big lie. Second time I had a chance to join you, we talked about the big why. Today I want to ask, what's the big miss? What are the things that are happening in the world that we need to be paying attention to if there's one thing or if we have a maximum of seven things, pieces of information that we want people to be paying attention to? What ought they be? While I am watching a raccoon climb 20 stories and hoping to heck that he makes it, what are six other things we also ought to be paying attention to? Net neutrality ended Monday. Parents are being separated from their children. There is nothing stopping our elections from being hacked. A raccoon climbed up a 20-foot building, or excuse me, 20-story building. The Neil Gorsuch, not Merrick Garland Supreme Court, eroded access to the ballot. Also, health care. I want to ask you, and the call-in number, by the way, is 202-808-9925, 202-808-9925. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith. I hope you're having a beautiful day. A couple questions that I want to ask. The big question today is, what's the big miss? What are we missing primarily? What is the story that you want to make sure we focus upon that is not getting covered? Here's one. What's the impact of net neutrality being eroded? One of them, by the way, is you got to support shows like this. And one of the reasons I'm willing to do this and so honored to do it and appreciate your time and attention is that we've got to be building movements. We've got to be building conversations for the public interest, not only based on clicks, not only based on profits, but also based on purpose. And that means we need you. Here's one that I'll just start talking about. I want to talk about what's happening that you actually can have an impact upon. Because part of the challenge, and I think it is important for us to focus on national news and what's actually going on. But as I said before, Donald Trump is a is not the head of the snake. He's the rattler. You cut off the rattler, it doesn't mean the snake dies. Not that we want anybody to die, but the rattle will grow back and the snake will continue. We have to be more than a cat chasing that snake or chasing a laser. We have to be focused on something in particular. One thing I want to urge some focus upon is locally. 
What's happening in your local community that is getting missed? What could we use this platform to bring up that people actually listening could have an impact upon? In your local town, what might we be able to do something about? Here's part of my challenge about presidential races. They're deeply important. And one vote does matter. We learned in Florida that one vote matters a lot. The reality of the presidential race, however, is the given donation, that single donation, won't have as likely a but-for result in that race as the impact you might be able to have on a state legislative race, on a local ballot initiative, on something in your city council. So I want to hear from you at 202-808-9925. What's happening in your local community that people might be able to do something about? What's happening in your local community that they're might be able to be a but for impact upon. I'm going to give you a few that I like. And again, the call-in number here is 202-808-9925. It's 202-808-9925. Here's one. Legislative races. We've been paying some attention to state legislative primaries because it's been primary season. State legislatures will decide State legislatures will decide in the 2020 election, in the 2021 legislative session, after the 2020 census, what the district lines for Congress will be. Right now, the party winning Congress has not won Congress because they have won a majority of votes, but they have managed to win a majority of districts. They've managed to win a majority of districts because how districts have been drawn. Legislatures draw districts. Legislative races decide who will be in control of drawing those districts. One thing that people can do is get engaged in legislative races. They're often decided by very small margins. I remember in our, how I got into this mess, in our town, in our state of Oregon, the legislature was controlled 35-25 by Newt Gingrich Republicans. And a group of kids got together and said, you know what? It looks like a big margin, but it was really only 1,200 votes. If you flipped 1,200 votes across the state of Oregon, you could flip it from 35-25 to 31-29 to in the other direction. And if you did that, then somebody like Jeff Merkley, instead of being the minority leader, would be the House Speaker. And then after being the House Speaker, could end up in the U.S. Senate. And they went out and knocked on doors and closed legislative races around the state and helped turn the Oregon State Senate and then helped turn the Oregon State House. And now... Jeff Merkley's in the U.S. Senate, and now there's a chance progressive policy to happen, and that was focusing on local stuff. What's the local stuff happening in your community that's being missed? What's the big miss? What's being missed in the argument? And what's also being missed in your local community? We've got a call from Randy on Free Speech TV. Randy, can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Randy, can you hear me? Hello. Let's try. Let's try this Hello? microphone. I'm worried this microphone isn't connected to the phone. Hello, Ra- uh, Randy. Hello? Can't, R- Randy can't hear me. The uh, uh, I will just continue. Randy, stick with us. We might be able to figure out the technology. I can hear you, Randy, but I don't think you can hear me. Uh, the here's another big one. One big one I posit is in fact state legislative races. Another one is the election rules by which we are governed, that ultimately we are not going to change our governance unless we address the rules by which we are governed. That means our campaign finance. That means, yes, our districts. 
That means how people have access to the ballot. We had a chance to talk about some of that last time. Randy, can you hear me? Yes. Randy, go ahead. You want to talk about, I think, the economy and the G7. What are we missing? Yes, sir. Okay. The the first step in the problem started uh, 11 months in with the tax cuts uh, and and uh, uh, Trump doing exactly what George Bush did in 2002, uh, exploding the debt. And um, and so when we look at this, all these lies and and his love for Russia and and his uh, shiny uh, uh, his his attention span towards shiny things that don't really matter to America. That this G7 really undermines the confidence in in our economy. Randy from Free Speech TV, thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith sitting in. The phones are now, in fact, working. Call in. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Some of you are watching it. I'm Jefferson Smith. As we've been watching raccoons climb up buildings, as we've been watching Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump shake hands and maybe something more eventually, what have we been missing? One of them is how healthcare is under attack. Joining us right now is our friend Egan. Egan, a healthcare expert, welcome you and hope that you're able to talk to us. How you doing? Good. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. What's happening with the ACA right now? I know politically that the Kaiser Health family uh, tracking poll it shows that the support of the ACA basically tracks the support and opposition of Donald Trump in reverse. That about 50% of the people are in favor of it. Just under, just over 40% of the people are opposed to it. Seems like it's just partisan reaction. But what's happening with its existence and attacks for its survival? Right, right. Right now, it seems like if it's summer in America, it's another part of the Republican war on health care. Uh, it's, it's beers, barbecue, and trying to get rid of the pre-existing condition uh, this summer. And so we're facing a number of uh, different attacks from the administration. This one is sort of the most pressing, where they're refusing to push back on some GOP-controlled states that are trying to get rid of the pre-existing conditions, one of the most popular forms, uh, parts of the ACA, and also other protections that Americans have come to count on. What are, what are the specific challenges now that are being faced? I know that in states, there were states that were turning down funding. I know that there was the big push to, in fact, uh, they failed to get the votes, but in fact, repeal it. Uh, what's the sort of next, next attack? Is it death by a thousand cuts? Is, is it another big vote happening in, in, in exchange for the August recess? What's the next big thing that people should be paying attention to? Yeah, so the biggest thing right now is uh, this, this court case where you've got uh, 20 or so um, GOP-controlled states, um, and they're, they're suing the federal government, saying because the Republicans took away the individual mandate as part of, part of their tax scam law last year, that now pretty much no part of the ACA should be left, that everything should be ruled unconstitutional. Um, DOJ should, you know, would normally defend that sort of thing uh, against this attack, but they've actually gone over to the other side. And so we've had uh, a number of de- Democratic state attorney generals like Javier Becerra of California stepping in to fight the good fight. So, yeah, it, it, I, I saw this piece of news. In fact, in my, in my local station, I, we talked about it very, very briefly. And then it dawned on me even after I finished, like looking at the script, which is like, wait, wait a minute. This is the federal government not defending itself. This is, the fe- right. this is the federal government not doing its duty by the Department of Justice to, in fact, be the lawyer for decisions made by the Congress of the United States of America and signed by the duly elected president of the United States of America. 
Uh, what is the precedent for this? And also, what does it mean? I, I heard one thing is that other people got to step in. But what's the kind of case if they're not uh, defending lawsuits against the ACA? What happens with those lawsuits? Right. And so, so the, big, the big challenge with this particular piece is really what it means for the American people, that we could be, end up going back to a, a time where insurance companies can deny coverage for pre-existing conditions, or they can go back after the fact and say, oh, you didn't fill out your form correctly, and so we're going to deny any sort of future coverage. And the, the real challenge is that there's over 130 million Americans that have some sort of pre-existing health condition, something like 44 million Americans with high blood pressure, another 44 million with high cholesterol, you know, over 30 million with asthma and, and chronic lung disease. And these folks are, and anyone else with pre-existing conditions are going to face a real challenge getting health care. And it could be even as something as simple as just changing jobs that their new employer may not, not cover uh, their needs or they might even get rejected. I hear about the case you're making in favor of the ACA, in favor of health protections for people in the United States. I'm also wanting to help them connect the dots, right? Like, like all of a sudden, Jeff Sessions says, I'm not going to defend these cases and everybody loses their health care. What happens in between? What does it actually mean? Are there lawsuits pending right now that people should be tracking and paying attention to that somebody like Javier Becerra needs to step in and defend or, or, or exercise a countersuit? Help connect those dots. Yeah, yeah. So right, so right now, the sort of the the main lawsuit that we've been talking about is uh, Texas uh, and others against the United States of America, and now California is one of the intervening defendants. And so what this means is that the case is going to move forward as it normally would, as if DOJ was defending it. But instead of the Department of Justice defending this, it's going to be the state attorneys general um, that will be stepping in to to take over the case and argue in favor of um, you know keeping these ACA protections. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's another deeply cynical move um, by, the, by the administration where Donald Trump over the past two, two years has said multiple times that he's not going to go after pre-existing conditions, that they're safe under him. And clearly that's not the case. I mean, no one's surprised by him lying at that point, at this point, but this is just one more example of that. Is Congress going to make another run at this thing before the midterm elections? That, that's a possibility. I mean, we're hearing from uh, Senator Bill Cassidy that he's got another, another version of his bill similar to his Graham-Cassidy bill um, that, again, would, you know, they sort of think about it as making it more flexible. What it really means is taking away ACA protections. So some people might be able to get cheaper coverage, but a lot of that's going to be junk plans where they end up with really high out-of-pocket costs that they can't afford. So they might have insurance, but they're not going to be able to use it, and it's no longer going to have those protections that people have come to count on from the Affordable Care Act. Is this a winner for them? I understand that this is an area of uh, I understand there's an area of energy for the the teabag party uh, movement years ago that continues today. I understand that it's a really important thing to say in a Republican primary. I wonder, though, with midterm elections coming, if people losing their health care is, in fact, the argument that Republicans want to make. How do you sort of read the political tea leaves? Yeah, I, I'm with you on that, that it, it really seems surprising that after taking so many defeats on health care last year and really firing up, you know, Americans who want, their, who want health care protections, which shouldn't be that hard to keep your health care protections. You shouldn't have to have, you know, parents of kids with cancer, you know, taking their kids up to Congress and saying, look, this is what happens. If you take him away, he's not going to take away his care. He's not going to be able to get his cancer treatment. But somehow we've, we keep having to fight that same fight. And so it does seem surprising that they would try to do this again in 2018, and especially sort of the, the point of the spear here is going after one of the most popular provisions, the pre-existing conditions. And why is that? Why is that? I understand why it's popular, why it's important, why it's deeply critical to human beings' lives. 
Why is that something they want to get rid of? Help connect those dots sort of economically and politically. That's the thing that, why? Because that's the thing the insurance companies want to get rid of most? Well, so the, the, the main reason it, it seems is that they think that that's sort of their next step, that by even though they couldn't do any of the actual sort of broader legislation uh, in terms of repealing the ACA in 2017, they were able to sneak in getting rid of the individual mandate um, in the tax scam bill right at the end of 2017. And so now they feel like by knocking out that linchpin, they feel like anything else in the ACA should now be considered unconstitutional because there's not sort of this requirement to buy coverage. There are a number of insurers that are on board with that because they don't, you know, without an individual mandate, folks might wait until they get sick to get covered. And so insurers would be pushing that. But there are also insurers that do want to be more responsible and want to, you know, provide quality coverage. But the, the, on the flip side, there's also a lot of really shady insurers, ones that used to make a lot of money off the backs of people by denying coverage for things like pre-existing conditions. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sports fan. For that, I apologize, perhaps. And I was a Dodger fan, and I remember Orr Horsheiser's 59-inning scoreless streak as a pitcher in 1988, as I recall. Uh, and it happened in the dead of summer, and it happened actually during the Olympics. There were other things happening that were distracting. I thought that actually helped Orr Horsheiser get 59 scoreless innings because there wasn't that much attention to the fact that he was going to break a historic record. I also wonder, you use the word cynical. If there is, one might call it cynical, one might just call it tactical, hoping to use a quiet summer or a noisy summer on other counts in order to slip by something that would be unpopular with American people, but very popular among a certain base and very popular to a bunch of people who are going to be funding Republican campaigns in the midterm elections. Am I being too conspiratorial? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that's that's you know part of what they tried to do multiple times last year when they were uh, trying to repeal the ACA. They you know would try to find times that you know there was other things going on and try to sneak in a vote or try to you know drop a bill at, on Friday and make people review it over the weekend. And this is like a, you know a 600-page bill or something like that. And so it is definitely not above them to try to sneak something like this in. Uh, at a time when they think other folks are distracted with, uh, you know, all the various uh, things this administration is putting up every single day. Egan Kemp with Public Citizen, thank you so much for being with us. Where can people find out more? How should people be tracking this stuff? Yeah, definitely. You can um, you can follow uh, our work at, at citizen.org, uh, but also just be keeping an eye out. You know, if you if you search things like pre-existing conditions, also check us out on Twitter. We're uh, Public Citizen. There's going to be a lot of uh, reporting from us and other folks uh, as this moves forward in the in the courts and also uh, potentially in Congress if if Cassidy decides to move forward with his bill. Thank you for your service. And before you hang up, I want to say thank you with a few more words. As I think about the challenge of democracy, the collective action problem of governing a country, not only for self-interest, but for the benefit of everybody, uh, that ultimately that is an exercise in mutual irrationality, maybe long-term rationality. The work of public citizen, the work that you do to try to be the lobbyist for the people uh, is priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. I want to say thanks for being with us. Thank yeah, you thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I want to bring in Brian. Uh, Brian, you are calling from Fort Collins, and I think you're going to make a point that might connect a couple of these dots on why the heck Republicans would be seeking an unpopular change to health care law right before an election. Yeah, well, you know, basically to me, the, you know, the, the fundamental problem with our – there are two fundamental problems. 
Um, one is wealth inequality, and the other is the amount of money in politics. And I, I, I'm trying to tie it into the topic you were just discussing. Sure. But, you know, what I wanted to say, uh, Jefferson, is that um, are you aware of something called the Article 5 um, process that uh, Wolfpack and Jenk Uger has have launched to try to get local state legislatures to pass enough, you need uh, two-thirds of the states to pass a resolution that would call for convening a convention, a limited-purpose convention, not a constitutional convention, um, that would uh, get the money out of politics, restore free and fair elections is the way they characterize it. I am, yeah. Larry, Larry Lessig at, uh, at Harvard Law School was a, is an is a acquaintance bordering on friend of mine. We've talked about, we've talked about that various thing. He get, that very thing, rather. He gives a, uh, he makes a pretty compelling case. In fact, he has a really good line that I think is a good line for people to borrow, particularly people who advocate for addressing money in politics. I don't, by the way, use the line getting money out of politics. I think marketing anything requires lots of resource. The question to me is, from where is that money coming and to what purpose? But his line, which I pass along, is uh, campaign finance reform isn't the most important issue. Your issue is the most important issue. If you're advocating for health care for your family, that's the most important issue. If you're trying to fight climate change, that's the most important issue. But campaign finance reform is the first issue. Fighting corruption in our method of governance is the first issue because we've got to address that if we're going to address any of those other things. That how I connect the dots between your call, between your uh, your helpful comment and the topic we were talking about on healthcare is that, see, if, if the democracy were working just to benefit all the people, you wouldn't push an unpopular health care reform or an elimination of a relatively popular health care reform that helps a lot of people right before an election. You wouldn't do it. It'd be real, real dumb. But you would do it if it helped you garner federal maximum contributions. Then it's not crazy. Then it's crazy like the fox. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You're also listening to Jeff Smith. That's me. Thank you for being you. We'll be back in a minute. is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, everybody. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm not Tom. I'm Jeff. I didn't win any of those awards, but I'm honored to be with you. I want to say thank you to the team and thank you to all of you. What's being missed? The call-in number here is 202-808-9925. It's 202-808-9925. As attention is directed from the bully pulpit, Where should we be directing our attention if we are being intentional about it? One could argue, in fact, I might argue, that essentially the entire communication strategy, as Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and now there's some rumors that she may be moving on before too long, there may be a new person, maybe Scaramucci will come back for eight or nine days. But it could be argued, and I might argue, that the entire communication strategy of the current occupant of the White House is, in fact, whataboutism is not responding, is not persuading, but is just directing attention to the things that this White House wants to pay attention to. It happens in response to attacks. Well, what about corruption? No, no, what about Hillary Clinton's emails? 
but it also happens proactively. It's not only a shield, it's a sword. Direct attention to what we hope is peace in North Korea, but also direct attention away from what was an enormously important week. And not because I am rooting against peace in the world. Heck, anybody who watches, listens to, cares about this program is probably rooting for peace in the world. But because I recognize this was an enormous week. This is a week that began with the Supreme Court saying, with five votes, one of those votes that should have been Merrick Garland, that it's okay for states to throw people off the voter rolls. This week also included the last day, at least currently, of net neutrality. A rule that said that you couldn't charge more on the internet to make sure that your internet searches can go through, that your emails can get delivered, that your news and information that you try to deliver will in fact be seen, that net input, that data over the interwebs will in fact be treated neutrally. We are joined right now by the president of the free press. That means he is enshrined in the First Amendment. That's an impressive accomplishment in itself. Craig Aaron. Craig, you with us? I am. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. What is the current state of net neutrality? Is it over forever or what is hope? And is that hope false hope? Uh, it is not over forever or we still have a chance to fight. So I think there is hope. I don't think it's false hope, but there is a fight ahead of us. Uh, the current state is that the net neutrality rules, the strong net neutrality rules that millions of people fought for and that were put in place in 2015 have now been officially taken off the books. Uh, the Trump FCC moved in December to do so. Uh, here, six months later, uh, they, they're, they're finally there. Uh, but this, I believe, will be far from the last word. Uh, we've got a fight in Congress that is, that is happening right now. Uh, the Republican-controlled Senate uh, already passed a bill uh, to overturn those FCC regulations. That bill now moves to the House. So we're in the middle of that fight. And simultaneously, there's going to be about to be a fight in the courts over this ruling. So, so we're not at the end of this fight. Um, but we are, we are certainly in at a very, very serious moment uh, where these fundamental protections have been taken away, uh, where the people in charge, you know, for, for ever since Donald Trump was sworn in, don't have any interest in enforcing the rules anyway, and where they're simultaneously clearing the way uh, to, you know, massive mergers, uh, including the one AT&T uh, move forward this week uh, after winning in court. Uh, the, the, the way is being cleared for these big, companies, the companies that control our access to the internet, to take even more power, even control of content at a moment where the rules are being taken away that prevent them from manipulating, yeah. discriminating, and favoring themselves. What I am trying to do these days, in my own mind, and when I have the chance to communicate with others, is connect important things that are happening on a day-to-day -day basis with polls showing what we already know with some obviousness, that people are feeling overwhelmed by the cascade of news. Mm -hmm. is I'm trying to connect uh, daily news items that seem important to larger themes, uh, maybe even one of the largest themes, to help make sense of it and help connect some dots. To me, the fight that is happening right now in the United States, which might actually be the fight that's been happening since the Re Revolutionary War, and even beforehand, is the fight of democracy versus property. Will power be wielded by people making decisions together, or will power be wielded because stuff is owned, owned because it's purchased or owned because it's inherited. And that the tension between that power is the fight that continues to rage, the arc of history that isn't bending towards justice, the arc of the moral universe that isn't bending quickly enough. 
And if we don't have a media that gives democracy a fair chance, fair chance, property wins. Property can continue to win if it can own the means of communication. I didn't say means of production. I said means of communication. I want to talk about what happens with the Senate bill. I want to talk about the courts, but offer some more specificity about what has been lost. What has this Ajit Pai-led FCC done or made the FCC stop doing? Well, so what's happened here during the Trump administration and under the leadership of Ajit Pai is really an all-out effort to dismantle any protections that Internet users, that individual viewers have. It, it is to reset that balance of power, which was, you know, already in favor of property, to use your, your rubric there, uh, but, but to, to push even harder by stripping away the, the protections and the levers that we have as individuals. What it all boils down to is, look, the Internet – uh, the media, the, these are tools, and, and they're going to be used, they can be used to liberate. And we've seen the, the, the possibility that the Internet has for liberation, for political organizing, and, and they can also be used to oppress. And, you know, that's the fight we're in the middle of, and we're in a big, the corporations themselves are in a big fight over who are going to be the gatekeepers, who are going to be the people making the decisions about what you watch, see, hear, and read every day, about what fits in that news window, about what kind of entertainment you're going to get. And they are moving very, very aggressively in this Trump administration to get everything on their wish list and to essentially get down to the, the, the smallest number of companies possible fighting it out. Uh, and and they're, they're succeeding in that in some ways. Um, but where it gets interesting is in doing so, in taking away these fundamental basic protections that the vast majority of Americans, you know, north of 85 percent, agree like, wait, why would you mess with the Internet connection? I like the Internet way, the way it is. They've really awakened people to the threat in a way that hasn't happened before. And so we're seeing these issues like net neutrality and who owns our broadcast television networks and all that break through in ways that, that simply didn't happen before and in ways that are actually starting to show up for politicians in their polling, when they go home. When and that, yeah, I want to ask talk. you about that. I want to ask you about that. It is clear that in the lobby of the U.S. Capitol and maybe in some offices that there are people who really like the idea of consolidation of the media. I have to imagine... It's not just fluffy hearts that care about a media that is more small D democratic. Uh, how big a political issue is this? And then also, I'm going to pile on this question. You said a Senate bill is passed. That means it's in the House's court. How long does the House have? If the House turns, does that mean that this could, in fact, get passed if Democrats control the House? And does that mean this could be the kind of political issue that is at issue in the congressional elections? Uh, I think it, it, it can and it must be, and I, and I do think there has been a breakthrough. Uh, when, the, when the Trump administration, when a GPI's FCC tried to move against net neutrality, when it became clear they were going to do so, it was Thanksgiving. They tried to drop the, the news the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, thinking no one would pay attention. Yep. Uh, but they, they didn't recognize this new reality we live in where everybody's, you know, they're sure they're with their family, but they're also on their phone. So, you know, and, our, and our phones people, are sometimes even more fun when we're with our family. Yes, exactly. It's, it's the new reality. And so there's a million people calling Congress over Thanksgiving weekend, 700 events happening across the country to protest this decision. It, you know, groups like mine, we were planning for 15 events. There were 700. So all of a sudden, this is breaking through. And, you know, I've talked to multiple congressional offices that got six, seven, eight thousand calls for net neutrality and, you know, maybe five against. And so politicians are something like, wait a minute. But now uh, the politicians people, who are elected really have made their the, the, the politicians who are elected have made their decision. The next decision that needs to be made is by the people. Are you seeing the activists 
who were making those 8,000 calls per office also engaged in these congressional elections to make sure the decision maker is the kind of person that will listen to them when they call? Well, well they're going to they're gonna have to be. And, and I think if you talk to politicians, if, you, if you're talking to people in the Democratic Party, for example, they're suddenly seeing like, wait a minute, uh, young people care about net neutrality. This is one of those issues. It's showing up in their polling in a way that's never happened before. You know, maybe it was around the edges, but you'd go into a congressional office a couple of years ago to talk about net neutrality and somebody might ask you a question like, well, does this mean, uh, you know, Silicon Valley is going to give me money? <laughs> now they're seeing that, you know, 50 percent or more of voters are saying, I'm going into the booth thinking about issues of net neutrality yep. and internet freedom. That, that creates a new, a, a new reality. And so we, we, we're, we're looking at a couple different phases because the Republican-controlled Senate... Craig, I got to cut you. I got to cut you. We're going to break. To the house. I think people do care about this because I think they care about democracy. This is the Tom Hartman Program. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith. We'll be back taking your calls. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's gonna help your posture. And you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is gonna work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith. The question in what I agree is a historic week is what are we missing as we write a first draft or discuss a first draft of history? The Brennan Center has been making the case on the Twitters that this is the time to bring democracy to the forefront. And it's hard for me to think of something I could agree with more. It's a theme that is strong enough, that is enduring enough, that is deeply ingrained in our democracy and our republic enough that it lasts beyond a given news cycle or a Twitter moment. So what do we do about it? What should we be paying attention to? What should we be advocating in our local communities, advocating in the coming congressional races? Joining us is Catherine Tercer. She's the head, the executive director of Common Cause in Ohio. That's one of the 50 states in these United States, and a pretty important one. Catherine Tercer, thanks for joining us. So, you know, democracy is all about making sure that our voices are heard and that we're, as much as possible, everyone who's an eligible voter participates in elections and that they have an opportunity to have their voices heard. 
And so one of the things that happened this week is the Supreme Court weighed in on whether our Secretary of State, a guy named John Husted, um, whether he was removing folks from the voter rolls appropriately or inappropriately. And the majority decided um, that, in fact, he was following the National Voter, Re- voter Rights Registrations Act, that he was, in fact, following, you know, was constitutional for him to remove people more frequently than other states have been doing. And one of the things we know is that the rules about voter registration and the paperwork make a tremendous difference. And, you know, that whole thing of, like, voting is a right, and yet we live in a use-it-or-lose-it state where you lose your voter registration if you don't participate frequently. So who drops out? Was it a six-year interval after the last election? Who gets scrubbed from the rolls in Ohio? So it's, it's a six-year interval. So we're talking about both local and federal elections. Um, and what happens is, you know, people, uh, you know, we all, you know, I, I, you know, like many of us that think a lot about democracy, we want folks to participate every single election. But there are lots of different reasons that people tune out for a period of time, and then they want to come back to an election. And so we're talking about a period of, uh, of three federal elections or a period of six years before you would be stripped from the voter roll. So who is that impacting more? And as I pile on a double question... Uh, why do we care if these people cared so much? Why do they not vote? So I think that, I think that as we look at who's who's removed, you're talking about people who are generally living more hand to mouth, folks that are um, living in more marginalized communities, um, and and folks that just you know are incredibly incredibly busy. Now you know one of the things that we talk about is voting as a right, and then there's the voting as a privilege. And I think for many of us, we think, well, you know, I'm sorry, but you literally missed, you know, major elections. Why should you still be on the voter rolls? Until you start to realize it's not like using a driver's license where, you know, you need to check in regularly and you need to make sure you've got insurance and all those kinds of things. This is actually a right. Yeah, it's not, you like, you lo- right you, it's not like you've lost the proficiency. It's not like your eyesight may have changed or your height and weight may have changed or your insurance status might have changed or you might not be any more a capable driver. You're still living in the United States and a citizen. If you still are, you're allowed to vote. And it's terrible to think about paperwork getting in the way of somebody exercising their right to vote. And one of the things that we know is the states that make it easy to register, that make it so that your registration basically follows you if you move, and all of those different ways that we can better engage people in the process, you know, in those states, more people vote. So you have, like, a good example would be Minnesota, um, where, in fact, people um, regularly, it's it's 70 percent, rather than the states that have more restrictive rules, which closer to 50%. Can you, okay, Catherine Terser from Common Cause, I want to, I want to, I want to pitch to you a study. Okay. I want to make the case because, because I want to prove the following sentence. I want data to support the following sentence. And that is that democracy works better when more people do it. Okay. Rather than democracy works better if we make it elite, if we have poll taxes, if we have paperwork, we have hurdles, but instead, if we have a big funnel that gets in as many people as possible, that it makes us smarter and it makes those people better. Now, here's bear with me for a moment, and then I'm hoping that your answer to my question will be yes. You'd be glad to help Common Cause commission this study. Okay, bear with me. Thank you for being here, right. and thanks for your patience. All right. So <laughs> when I when I go around and talk at colleges, and I would get, I remember being in Southern California, at, where I think I was in Pomona, and I had the same. I would go there every year, and I would have the same kid ask basically this, have the same debate with me each time I went down for two or three years running, until I think he graduated. Uh, and, and it was, well, why do we want more people to vote? The dum-dums are dum-dums. We don't want the dum-dums voting. 
it's better to cull the dum-dums out of the democracy because the democracy worked better. Here is my hypothesis. It is not a theory because I don't have yet data to support it, which is why I need you. My hypothesis is that it doesn't work that way. It works the other way around. That when a person starts participating, they understand democracy better. That rather than having the test first and then making, letting people vote, instead, have them vote. Have them receive a voter's pamphlet in the mail. Have them pay attention to that name that they, oh, vaguely remember sort of checking and say, oh, yeah, I remember that. That's the city councilor. They're now my city councilor. And they start paying a little bit more attention. I think that the causal direction is in the direction in favor of voter access. I think we should do a study, somehow a controlled experiment, to demonstrate that people, after they vote the first time, know more after they vote the first time. Would you please help get that done the next six months? Thank you very much, Catherine Terser. So it's, it's an interesting thing because I know I firmly believe that we are better off when our reflection, when our elections actually reflect our community and how is, how do we hold elected officials accountable and how do all of the different things that we want out of elections, how does that work unless you actually have an elections that are reflective of the community, not the money in politics, not a variety of other of different things. It is interesting to think about, like, if, in fact, you get people to the water, so to speak, with the election, um, what you're saying is you get them to the water and then they're going to drink and they're going to get to, you know, know that pond. Um, it's interesting. We'll have to think about, like, how exactly you could do that. Um, my kind of first thought had to do with, like, you could do a, a something that looks at, like, once people get into a habit of voting, do they keep that up? And then you could also, we could do, like, a little sampling to see, like, um, you know, you're somebody who didn't, you know, didn't participate in the local elections, meaning the ones that are an odd number of years, but now you do. How did, you know, what was the change? And do a little sampling to talk to people about that. Because I would guarantee this it. Is really, yeah, it's really interesting. I think we're going to need to do a lot of brainstorming to figure out how to do this best. Because yeah, I, would, I would guarantee it. I guarantee because I can remember, I can remember my first vote. And the first vote, that, and I was like a political science major. But the reason I voted wasn't because of some high ideals. The reason I voted was it was the last election in my state before full-on vote by mail. And a buddy of mine, I'll never forget him, Trevor Albee, said, asked me, Jeff, you voted yet? I said, no. I said, come on. And I got in his truck and we went and voted. And I wasn't trying to avoid voting. I wasn't opposed to voting. I just didn't have a habit yet. And one of the reasons I became a democracy advocate is recognizing that this usually is not a moral or immoral choice. It has more to do with habits. You said paperwork. It's not that somebody's like, oh, I'm against this stuff. I don't do paperwork. It's just the more hassles you put in the way, the fewer people are going to do it. What I think morally is at stake in a democracy is that when we see voter turnout going up, it's when stuff is more important. So one could imagine fewer people participating during a, uh, during a period of time when things are going okay. But then when there's really something that they need to engage in, that's when we want them to have a chance to engage. Of course, we'd love them to engage the whole way along, but we don't want to exclude them during those very most important times when we have to, as a society, come together and figure out how, in fact, we're stronger together than we are apart. At that very moment, it's more important, just like early voter registration deadlines. At the very moment, people are starting to pay attention because things are really important. That is exactly the wrong time to exclude them. And I just know it after I cast that first ballot. I then knew a few names of the people in Eugene, Oregon, who like ran things and like were elected to stuff. And had I not done that, I wouldn't have ever paid attention to their names. What should I be asking you? What do you want to talk about before they kick us off the air? Oh, so, you know, one of the things you might want to talk about is Ohio recently had uh, a victory after many years. Um, we passed uh, as a state on May 8, which is the day of our primary, we passed uh, congressional redistricting reform. And all over the country, we're having conversations about something else that makes our 
elections much less meaningful, reduces competition, and, um, you know, basically rigs election, and that's gerrymandering, that, you know, you draw those crazy district lines, and, in fact, you can, from that, predict the results um, because you create these Democratic districts and Republican districts, and people are not participating in meaningful elections. Um, so in 2015, we passed state legislative redistricting reform, and we just passed congressional redistricting reform. And, you know, we should be, you know, just in the next, you know, week, possibly two, we'll hear from the U.S. Supreme Court about whether, in fact, redistricting, you know, gerrymandering the, the thing where they're playing, manipulating those district lines, whether, in fact, it is unconstitutional. And I am very hopeful that they will determine that's the case. And it could mean a, a difference all over the country. Catherine, before we go, again, talking to Catherine Turser from Common Cause, as a last word, I make the argument that democracy is the argument. How do you get people to care about it? So, you know, I think we can need to connect it to what our daily lives hold for us. And whether you're thinking about your kids' education or whether you're thinking about the air you breathe, elections matter and we need to participate as much as possible. Thank you, Catherine. This is the Tom Hartman Show. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Democracy. I think that's the fight. I think that is the word and the principle and the concept and the argument and a meaningful part of the solution that provides a sufficiently meaningful and deep theme to hold together a movement that might, in fact, make democracy work. I think that's the fight. I think that is what is at stake. While there was a handshake and platitudes uttered that I root for peace, I root that they will do something in North Korea, democracy was under attack in the United States. And I'm not saying that to overstate. I'm not saying that for clickbait. I'm saying that because that's, I think, the only way I can understand it. But the Supreme Court made a decision so that voters who weren't all that active, who hadn't voted in three straight, well, maybe even one or two presidential races, could be kicked off the rolls. And that even if the motivation were such a thing, were for partisan advantage, that it's okay, as long as it seems as a matter of course. The person in the country who has probably done more writing on this topic to help build the rhetorical architecture and the story and the understanding about the battle for democracy is Ari Berman. You've seen him on TV. You've read his stuff in The Nation. You've read his stuff in Mother Jones. And now you're going to hear him here. Ari Berman, thank you so much for being with us. Are you with us? Well, we'll get Ari, we'll get Ari back on the phone, the, and this brings up several fights. The thing we're going to be talking to Ari about is, uh, is voter access. Uh, we have Gerald, actually, let's take Gerald's call, uh, Gerald, uh, on, uh, voter involvement. Gerald, you there? Yeah. Um, my, uh, in terms of the study, have you, you might want to look at, um, the number of people, uh, the more people that vote, the more likely is that the representative is going to be 
uh, responsive to them when they when they go in to complain. For example, is if you are have low voter involvement with, uh, say, African Americans, if they go in saying, and talk to the representative, he, he's going to calculate the odds and say, "Well, I don't really have to listen to him because they're not involved." Versus if you have a high voter ta- uh, involvement, you're going to have the representative more responsive to the individual versus the uh, small uh, exactly uh, and, small group. And, and Gerald, to me, it's a feedback loop. To me, the dynamic is that somebody starts dropping out of the system a little bit, doesn't pay as much attention. And so people with power don't interact with them because they don't need their votes. They're not donating. They're not voting as much. They might not be calling into a radio show. So you don't worry about them. And the fact you don't worry about them, the fact that the politician doesn't call them, doesn't send a mail piece to them maybe to keep their mail budget a little bit lower, doesn't communicate about the issues that matter to them, makes that person even more disconnected to the system. And then all of a sudden, we it it just goes sort of in a spiral, making it worse. Yeah, Amen. so you might want to include on your study is how responsive uh, voters are, uh, representatives are in, say, Australia, where they have a Everybody's high percentage of voting yep. versus the United States, where you have the disenfranchisement. Yep. Gerald, thank you so much for your call. I think we now do have Ari Berman. Are you with us? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. I, I gave you this wonderful introduction. I don't know if you heard <laughs> I, I any heard, of it. No, I heard you. You just couldn't hear me. All so. right. Well, it's nice to have you Once now. Once you gave me that introduction, I just didn't have anything more to say. <laughs> All right. Well, it was good talking to you. Take care. <laughs> What's, uh, break down again what the Supreme Court uh, the Supreme Court decision made quickly. We, we talked about it half an hour ago a little bit that the uh, uh, of allowing the state of Ohio to purge voters. But I also then want to ask you, what is at stake? What principles are in this opinion that are going to matter for future decisions that governors, legislatures, right-wing operatives, anti-democracy operatives uh, are up to? So what the Supreme Court was considering was whether you could purge infrequent voters from the rolls. So the way it worked in Ohio was that if you missed an election, they sent you a mailer that basically asked you to confirm your registration. If you didn't respond to that mailer and you didn't vote for two more elections, you were then removed from the voter rolls without any notice. So one of the key plaintiffs in the case was a guy who voted in 2008 didn't vote for a few more elections, and then showed up to vote in 2015 for a local referendum and found that he was no longer on the voter rolls, uh, even though he hadn't moved or done anything else that would have rendered him ineligible to vote. And so the the worrisome thing here is that this is basically making uh, the vote a use it or lose it right. And if for some reason, any number of reasons, you decide not to vote in a few elections, you then might not be able to vote in future elections, which is really not how we think of voting in this country. And so I think there's sort of a tactical issue over, you know, infrequent voters and, and how they get purged from the rolls. And there's a much larger issue over how we think about the right to vote. And I think my big concern here is that this is going to just open the door to much larger voter purging by states because Ohio was a state that had purged 2 million people from the rolls more wow. than any other state since 2011. And uh, one study found that African-American voters in the three largest counties in the state were purged at twice the rate of whites. And so this wasn't just the purging of infrequent voters. People were purged for other reasons as well. And I think we've already seen Republican officials around the country say that they're going to use this decision uh, as an excuse to try to do more aggressive voter purging. Which has been one of the big moves. I mean, the, one of the things that, that Tom has been talking about is democracy and change is the, is the move by large property uh, since Brown versus Board of Education, since even back to the Civil War, to try to sort of a Southern strategy. And I don't mean that in the Nixon way. I mean, I don't mean like trying to get Southerners to vote for you. I mean, the South trying to figure out how it could make non-majoritarian policies 
enacted in a place that has people voting for things and you have to shape not only the districts, you also got to shape who gets a chance to vote. You do it with poll tax, you do it with purging them out of the elections. Two million people in Ohio. Ohio, as I recall, is a relatively close state electorally when it comes to presidential races. It is. Absolutely. We've seen so many close races there. And I think the the thing that's noteworthy about voter purges was, you know, back in the Jim Crow era when uh, many African-Americans were unable to vote, uh, first, the thing they did was make it as hard as possible to register to vote. But even if you were able to register, they made it very difficult to stay on the voter registration rolls. So voter purges were one tactic that was used to try to maintain white supremacy. And if you look at going forward uh, more recently, one of the things that the National Voter Registration Act of 1993, which was passed after the Voting Rights Act of 1965, one of the things that the National Voter Registration Act said was that there have to be some policies in there, both to make it easy to register to vote, but also make sure that you're not kicked off the voter rolls, because it was a problem where a lot of states would make you re-register all the time, for example, which is very burdensome. They'd make it difficult to register in the first place. And if you have a situation like in Ohio, if you're not notified that you're purged from the voter rolls, you're going to show up. You're not going to be on the list and your vote's not going to count. You're only going to be able to register for future elections unless your state has same-day registration, which 15 states have, but Ohio does not. And so we're facing a situation here if Ohio decides to do large-scale uh, voter purging, that could affect a lot of people. And I imagine there are people out there that didn't vote in previous elections but want to vote because of Trump, that have become politically engaged because of Trump. And they're the very people that could be purged from the rolls because they haven't voted previously, uh, or they voted once a long time ago and they didn't vote for a few elections. Now they want to vote because Trump got them politically active, and they could be purged from the voter rolls. So I think we used to understand that there had to be some reason why you were purged. You moved, you died, you did something that would make you ineligible. Not voting in and of itself was not thought of as a reason why you suddenly became ineligible to vote. Yeah. And, and so... As we think about the, uh, the effort to uh, suppress votes, to limit democracy, which has been a core plank of ALEC, a core plank of, of really the Virginia School, a core plank of, of, of the uh, sort of red wall that has helped prop up, prop up and protect this current president and George W. Bush and this current Congress and Newt Gingrich, has been to erode people's access to the ballot. What principles, in this opinion, might be applied not only to purges, but to other efforts, because there have been federal cases uh, under the National Voter Registration Act and the National Voter Voting Rights Act about uh, about voter suppression generally. Are there, it's, once the Supreme Court has written something, people can quote it. Any quotes you're concerned about in this opinion? Well, I, I'm just quote, concerned about the fact that uh, the National Voter Registration Act pretty clearly said that people can't be purged for not voting. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that language That's uh, enough. Was, was, was seemingly ignored. Uh, and then there was the bigger picture, picture issue, with, which Sotomayor pointed out in her dissent, which is that uh, the Supreme Court seemed to ignore the very things that led to the passage of the National Voter Registration Act in the first place, which was widespread voter suppression, wide-scale voter purging. And that's the kind of thing that the law was supposed to protect, and now they're invoking the law to do those very things. So the, the, the opinion by Justice Alito itself was very technical. This is a very technical case. Uh, but we've already seen in the aftermath of it that uh, Republican officials are trying to exploit this decision for other reasons. For example, Chris Kobach, the Secretary of State of Kansas, right. who's really the most notorious a voter suppression advocate in the country, he is locked in the battle with ACLU over a law that requires proof of citizenship, meaning you have to have a passport, a birth certificate, or naturalization papers with you 
yep. to be able to register to vote, which is incredibly burdensome. It blocked one in seven people in Kansas from registering to vote, which is just an enormous number of people who are disenfranchised by this law. The courts blocked the law, and, ACL, and Kobach is now in a federal trial over it. And Kobach just said that now, because of this Ohio opinion, I have the power uh, to enforce this law because uh, the courts can't restrict uh, my right to, to make, people, make it harder for people to register under the National Voter Registration Act. So what Kobach is saying is that even though these are two separate issues, one is about uh, purging infrequent voters, one is about requiring... So you can use the opinion for, for the other. Ari Berman, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to break. Thank you for the work you do. It's critical if we're going to have a democracy. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jeff. We'll be back. I'm Jeff. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. We're talking democracy. We're talking about what's missing. What are the big things that are missing? I want to take a call. Cassandra's been waiting patiently from Middleton, Wisconsin. Wanted to add something that you think we're missing about the G7 summit. Speak your piece. Yes, thanks, Jeff, for taking my call. Um, I am a military veteran. I served in the Army. Thank you. And um, I stood up, well, I stayed up and watched the summit all night until early in the morning to hear Trump's remarks. And as a veteran, and I'm speaking as a veteran, there was a caller who said we should not be critical of Trump. But we have to be. What she is missing is this. When he sat in that chair next to the dictator, not the leader, the dictator, he was representing everyone in America, especially someone like me who took the oath to defend the country. I did not take that oath for our president to debase yeah. the presidency and to sell me out and all of my soldiers and other servicemen for whatever, for his for feeling. And um, I, I know there might be other people listening, but it, it was just horrible watching the American flag and the North Korean flag next to each other as if they were, as if, both of those countries were equal. Yeah, and Cassandra, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, but I will say, I think the caller before, and I, I will admit, I have the benefit of the notes that were passed along to me as she was in the queue, was that she was making a case not for unity with Trump, but for not critiquing critics of Trump as, as uh, high-level Democratic elected officials are cr- criticizing Trump for not getting anything out of the deal, uh, asking peaceniks, of which many of us are those, not to criticize those Democrats for not only falling in line behind Trump if it looks like he's working for peace. I know it's sort of a double negative, and, and I'm hoping what I said was mildly non-confusing. But, Cassandra, thank you so much for calling in. Here's what I want to say as we wrap. The uh, I don't think this show is entertainment, even though I hope it, at a few moments it might have been entertaining. Uh, there are other ways to find synaptic sugar to while away our days. What I hope we are doing is building a community of people who understands that we're stronger together than we are apart. Because as we look at the big things we got to address, from our climate, to our democracy itself, to human beings who don't know if they get to be with their kids or not, to our health care, the question is, whose job is that? Whose job is it to make sure 
that a poor person who's having a hard time eating gets to? Whose job is it to make sure that the air that I breathe and that you breathe is clean? Whose job is it to make sure that somebody actually has a decent education? Whose job is it to make sure we honor our best traditions and try to change our worst? Whose job is that? Turns out it's none of our jobs. And that's why it has to be all of our jobs. The coalition of the benevolently irrational. Without you, democracy is impossible. With you, it is, and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. Thanks for being with us. I'm Jeff. Tom will be back soon. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.